1: the Talking Biotech Podcast. This podcast today is a little bit different. It's number 50, and anytime you hit a half hundred of anything, it's kind of special. So we'll try a little different format. My name is Kevin Fulta, and it's been such a pleasure to sit and talk to you about science just about every week now. Today's episode approaches a topic that people frequently inquire about. They'll say, well, I certainly understand genetic engineering of crops, I grow the plants on my farm, or I understand the products because they use them in food. I also understand that maybe you can get a gene into a single cell using either these bacterial approaches, or maybe by using other ways to deliver new genetic material into that single cell. But there's this area in between, kind of a biological black box that people don't understand. And that is how do you take that single cell and grow it into a whole new plant. Now this is an interesting area that really is at the intersection of art and science. Something known as tissue culture in a process called regeneration. The trick is to take that newly engineered cell and grow it in a medium or on some sort of a medium in the presence of the right chemicals and nutrients. In order to get it to grow into a brand new plant, and it's a it's a process that cells can do in plants, a uh, quality called totipotency. Now today's guest is an expert in this area and actually a trailblazer. I saw him give a seminar in 2007. His name is Dr. Indra Vasile, and he was a professor at the University of Florida from 1967 to 1999. And after he had retired, he still stayed around the university and helped out in various contexts. It was a great pleasure to get to know him and attach the work that I was familiar with to the person that was instrumental in doing it. But Dr. Vassil's seminar in 2007, before he left the university, illuminated this very rich history of, of tissue culture and many of the personalities and many of the scientists that dedicated their careers to this particular process. And on today's podcast, we get to hear from him. So the first question I asked him was, what is the history behind totopotency? Where did people start to experiment with media and growing cells in nutrient solutions?
2: It goes back almost uh, 100 years that uh, there were attempts at that time from very basic biology and uh, There is this famous uh, theory of Schleiden and the cell theory, which proposed based on their anatomical observations, both on plants and animals, that uh, each cell uh, is independent and a cell can arise only from a cell. And so the the basic uh, uh, theory was that if each cell arises from the cell, Then the whole organism is built of cells, and eventually, you know, from a single cell, you can get the whole organism. But there was no experimental evidence produced for that. And there were a number of people, then they started thinking about these things. And it was a very gradual and and painstaking process, many failures and and some successes. And uh, eventually what happened was that people started then putting cells in culture. In the beginning, this was essentially a failure because the nutrient solutions which can support the growth of a cell in isolation, those are not well known. Basically, it was just a knob solution about four or five different salts. And so one of the major breakthroughs was in the 1930s uh, in France, Roger Gautier's group in, in Paris and in the United States, Philip White, Uh, they developed uh, artificially, artificial nutrient solutions which were much more supportive of plant growth and what helped that very much was the discovery at about the same time of the plant growth substances, generally known as the auxins, especially uh, indole-3-acetic acid and which a number of people in Europe were involved and then Ken Timon, one of the most uh, prominent plant physiologists of the time here at Caltech in the United States. He was the first to crystallize, uh, uh, isolate the crystallized partial part of the endocytic acid. So White and others then started incorporating the oxen in nutrient media.
1: So Dr. Vasile describes this process of plant tissue culture of growing plant cells in nutrient solutions and trying to get them to grow into more cells or maybe even eventually whole organisms. This was greatly facilitated by the stuff he mentioned, indoleacetic acid, which is one type of a naturally occurring compound in plants called auxins, and auxins direct plant cells to either divide or elongate, and of course many other aspects of gene expression. But auxins were only part of the story, and as we'll hear, the next component of this comes from the inside of coconuts, as it's part of coconut milk.
2: About the same time, uh, there was an early comment in, in the 1902 by Gottlieb Haberland in Europe, in Germany and Austria, that uh, juices from embryo sac uh, can help the growth of embryos. And so it it was a gradual evolution, but eventually they started using coconut milk, which is basically the liquid endosperm in which the embryo is bathed during early development. So they started putting coconut milk into the nutrient solutions. And that helped a great deal. For almost 30, 40 years, coconut milk was a very important part of plant nutrient media. But there was always the concern that coconut milk was a black box nobody really understood or knew as to what components of coconut milk are promoted those. so there were a number of attempts to try to identify those but those were not successful for many many years and it was about this time that Folke uh, Skoog at the University of Wisconsin who had been a student of uh, three months at uh, Caltech uh, was visiting Cayman's lab who had moved to Harvard University and he saw some tissue cultures of tobacco uh, which were initiated by Philip White and he saw some shoot farm initiation in those and he got very much interest in that and when he came back to Wisconsin as an assistant professor he started looking into those things and trying to see if you know that could be done in, in his lab And so he found some very interesting things that, for example, when he took small pieces of stem tissue of tobacco and and put it in nutrient solutions, they would grow. But if he had a small part of the vascular tissue also along with the pitch tissue, you would find that there would be blood formation in these cultures. And from that then evolved the question of, okay, what is there in the vascular tissue? And eventually, actually, it led to the use of extracts of uh, tobacco leaves being added to the nutrient solution. And that enhanced growth very dramatically. He was trying to develop a nutrient solution which could be used to bioassay uh, cytokines on which he was working and which were then discovered in his lab along with uh, Carlos Miller. And eventually then they, they identified that there were these minerals in the, new, uh, in the tobacco leaf extracts, which are really the main factor enhancing growth. And so from that developed, uh, the famous Murashivian school meeting, almost every publication in the world now using plant tissue cultures uses the and school medium, which was in a sense, uh a further modification of the white's medium, because uh, the the main difference between the two was that there were very, very high levels of different salts than white had used. And there was chelated iron, which is much more stable and some vitamins were added, but it's a very successful medium. So that really helped a great deal. At the same time, the discovery of cytokinase, and this was a major a contribution by schools lab Carlos Miller and School, that they found that a balanced uh, combination of cytokines and toxins in the medium uh, could be used to manipulate whether shoots were formed or roots were formed and so that then formed the basis of a lot of the future studies on plant tissue culture that if you wanted to regenerate plants then you had to use a mixture of uh, cytokines and oxins. And again, until today, this has started in the mid 50s, until today, that is the basic concept which is used using cytokines and oxins. And this provided a further understanding into the control of morphogenesis uh, in, in plants. So, those were, I think, very major milestones the development of nutrient solutions, uh, the discovery of oxins and then cytokines, and the Discovery of the relationship between auxin cytokines and, and plant properties.
1: So, this was the start. Being able to define a nutrient solution that would support the growth of plant cells and ratios of auxin and cytokinin to plant hormones that would help those cells grow. Now that there was a basic toolbox. Dr. Vasile starts to reflect upon the discoveries and the steps that were taken that would transition those cells from single cells to whole plants. Now in the next section you'll hear him refer to something called callus, which are just de-differentiated cells. They're cells that haven't really made up their mind as to what they're going to be. You'll also hear him refer to uh, Vimla, which is his wife, who worked on these projects as well and also was instrumental in many of these early discoveries.
2: But one of the most basic questions being asked was still not answered. That is, plants were being regenerated from a wide variety of species, especially die species. But nobody had been able to show that you could grow a single cell into a whole plant. And that was the final proof needed for the cell theory. And so in, in Al Hildebrand's lab, where Wimla and I both spent about three years in the early 60s, uh, there was a major attempt to try to solve this problem. Uh, Hildebrand was essentially a plant a pathologist, but he got interested in tissue culture and made major contributions to the development of nutrient solutions and also uh, the ultimate truth of the total potency of plant cells. So they had developed some methods to culture single cells. First thing they did was uh, to develop uh, cell suspension cultures. And then take single cells from those, put it on a piece of filter paper, put that filter paper with a single cell or a few cells on top of callus, and they showed that single cells would grow. But there was some factor coming from the callus through the filter paper to support the growth. And eventually, when we went there, Vimla started working on this project, and she was able to take single cells, put them in a microculture uh, chamber. And you know, things were very primitive in those days; we didn't have all these uh, ready-made microchambers, so one had to make a microchamber on a glass slide. And since you could put a single cell on such a slide, you could also then observe it continuously under a microscope. We had. Uh, Uh, movies made uh, from videos made from the growth of the cells every few minutes there would be a shot taken and then you know you could see the actual single cell dividing and so there were two uh, really uh, pioneering breakthrough papers published in i think it was 1965 and 66 in science in which first paper they showed that from a single cell you could get callus tissue which could then be subcultured indefinitely and in the second paper they showed that from a single cell you could get a callus tissue and then by using and cytokinin combinations you could get whole tobacco plants. so that was the ultimate and final proof of the totipotency of plant cells
1: so here dr vasil describes how nutrient solutions and precise combinations of plant hormones allow scientists to turn single cells into whole tobacco plants. And this is really where biotechnology can step off, and as he'll describe in the next section, the focus now turns into how do you introduce a gene into those initial cells.
2: And once that was established, there were a number of things which then could be deduced from that. That if you could get a whole plant from a single cell, then if you could change that cell, you could then have that change expressed in the whole plant. So I think that uh, the, the basis of plant biotechnology today goes back to that work, that if you can introduce something in a single cell, then you have the experimental capability of growing a whole plant from that. And as the genetic engineering technology developed, uh, the restriction enzymes first uh, work on on bacterial systems, and then the early work on agrobacterium uh, in uh, Gene Nestor's lab and Armin Brown's lab in this country and uh, uh, Bob Schiltroup's lab in Leiden in the in Holland and Jeff Schell and uh, Van Mantegu in, in Ghent. And so there was a lot of this work going on. There was also work going on in the Monsanto corporate labs by Rob Fraley uh, and others. And in uh, 1983 I think, or 81, I, I don't remember exactly the date, but early 80s. It was first time shown that you could get uh, foreign genes into uh, plant tissues and you could gen- regenerate genetically engineered plants. So, so all of this goes back to the cell theory to demonstrate the totipotency. And once you have that, then theoretically, any gene that you can isolate, you can introduce into a plant cell, and from there uh, you can get whole plant and have that gene expressed. Uh, There are problems, of course, at each stage, and it took a long time to to overcome those problems. And uh, one of the the problems was how to get the genes, foreign genes, uh, into uh, plant cells. And initially the work was with the agrobacterium where uh, you don't have any control on where the genes go, but along with the part of the agrobacterium DNA, the tDNA, that gene could be added to that plasmid in the agrobacterium. And when agrobacterium was infected, the plant cell transferred the tDNA along with the foreign gene. Which had been
1: so Dr. Vasil describes this process of how do you get a gene into that first single cell. And he talks about agrobacterium, a naturally occurring bacterium that lives in the soil that infects plants. And part of its infectious cycle is to transfer a piece of DNA into a plant cell. Well, scientists simply tried to use the agrobacterium as a way to deliver the gene they wish to install. So the bacteria did the work. In the next section, you'll hear him talk about protoplasts. A protoplast is when you take a plant cell and digest away the cell wall. It leaves kind of a naked cell that now can be more amenable to different ways of introducing genes. You'll talk about PEG or polyethylene glycol. It's a chemical that's used to facilitate that gene transfer into protoplasts. You'll also hear about how they're actually using live ammunition <laughs> in ways to transform cells and so only those
2: species which were susceptible to agrobacterium uh, infection were able to be transformed that was a major restriction and because at that time uh, the agrobacterium could be used only to transform or infect dichotomy species so major Food crops like cereals, uh, they could not be uh, used for that purpose. And so there were attempts to develop other techniques to introduce genes into single cells. There were uh, protoplast systems developed whereby osmotic or electric shock, you could introduce genes into single protoplast and then grow protoplast into whole plants. I mean, that's one of the fields where we also did a great deal of work, especially with cereal grains. And that was used successfully, that genes could be introduced into protoplasts and from protoplasts to whole plants. Actually, the first maize, uh, genetically engineered maize was produced by that method. And, but still, there were a lot of problems because it's not easy to grow protoplasts. It's very technically very difficult. There are problems in terms of application of agrobatrium methods to many crops, especially major crop uh, species. And so there were other methods, a number of methods, people were trying all over the world. And the most successful there was a biolistic method, which was developed by John Sanford at Cornell, along with his uh, colleagues in the engineering department there. Uh, it was a very crude method in the beginning. Basically, they were using a, a blast from a 32 caliber bullet to, to propel, uh, DNA, which had been coated onto uh, gold particles into plant cells, uh, that has been uh, greatly re- revised and improved over the years. And now we don't use actually when we use uh, this so-called uh, gene gun or uh, the biolistic method in our lab, uh, we use uh, the original uh, instrument. It was actually the third machine that John Ford made, uh, which you are able to, you know, acquire. And so it, we use blank 22 caliber bullets, and uh, you know when we use that, there was you know gunpowder smell all, all, all over the lab. <laughs> so so now of course uh, it is uh, air pressure is used to, to propel the the coated particles into cells. So uh, these particles go into cells, and then some of the cells which receive these particles they they incorporate the DNA into their genome and then you can develop whole plants. But one of the very interesting things in, in all of this has been that there, there has been, a, you know, a lot of controversy that when plants are generated in tissue cultures, whether there are a number of cells together which form a plant. a plant developed from a single cell Because if a number of cells contribute to the formation of plants, then there is real uh, danger of it being a chimera, because let's say that 10 or 100 cells together form a new plant. Uh, The foreign gene has not gone into all of these cells. And so the resulting plant would have the foreign gene in some parts and some not in others. So it will be a totally useless plant but one of the really interesting things which which has happened is that very early on it was shown that one could get actually somatic embryos formed in tissue culture. Uh, This was predicted by uh, Gottlieb Haverland in 1992 and actually he said uh, in, in his publication and presentation, that one could use embryo-sac fluids to support the formation of this so-called somatic embryo is uh, in, in in tissue tissue.
1: Ah, uh, this music puts me in the mind of the cosmos. <laughs> uh, Dr. Vasile brings up a really important point. This idea of the somatic embryo. So the somatic embryo, when we say somatic, we mean from the body. So, this is taking a callous cell and somehow giving it the identity of an embryo, meaning that it now has the potential to develop into an entire new plant from that one set of genetic instructions. This was a key point in the development of tissue culture techniques. Back to Dr. Vasile.
2: And so, uh A lot of work, uh, we worked very extensively on this, in fact, a lot of the work uh, on the formation of somatic embryo systems in cereals was uh, pioneered by our group in in Florida. And now, in fact, uh, most of the major crop species in which transgenic or biotic plants have been produced, they all come through the process of uh, somatic embryo formation in tissue cultures. And one of the great advantages of having that is that somatic embryos, just like their zygotic counterparts develop from single cells. In a majority of cases, we have done actually anatomical studies and other people have done. And the fact that somatic embryos do not show chimeras, and they're very stable, uh, they, they show you know, genetic fidelity with the mother tissues, uh, prove very strongly that somatic embryos do arise from single cells. So that is a great advantage that, uh, you know that if you put a foreign gene into a single cell, and if that then develops into an embryo and that into a plant, that you are going to have a solid plant and, and not chimera. So in a nutshell, I think those are the major milestones. There were a number of bottlenecks, but uh, uh, one of the very interesting things is that in, in most cases where those difficulties were overcome, were not by following uh, routine ideas and procedures, but these were very courageous people uh, who took great risks and were very controversial at the time. People would laugh at them you know, and ridicule them. And they were challenged that no, this was not true, and all, but eventually they they had the conviction of their their beliefs and they gradually they provided the evidence and then finally, everybody else started using the same method because they worked and so I think this is a very important lesson for young people working in science that uh, one should not follow just the previous work blindly, you know, have the courage to challenge uh, dogmas and concepts and be bold to try uh, new ideas. Uh, And in in history is full of these examples that people who took those bold steps, they were actually the pioneers like Philip White, people working with the system, John Sanford, he was, you know, ridiculed for many years. Uh, when he was working at Cornell, you know, they would use onion uh, skins to to blast these uh, particles, and so people passing by their his lab would say, "Oh, this is a McDonald's because you could smell, uh, you know, onions uh, all over the place." <laughs> and uh, but he stuck to his guns, and eventually, you know, he. Uh, he made a very, very significant contribution and we all uh, benefit from that a lot of the biotech crops these days. In fact, I think a majority of them are now are coming uh, through the biolistic system. And uh, and he was actually a, a geneticist. He was not a tissue culture man, uh, he was not into molecular biology and all that. But, uh, he had this idea and he worked uh, in collaboration with the engineering colleagues, and then made you know, one of the very, very meaningful inventions.
1: Uh, so one theme we continually hear coming up over and over again in the early days of plant tissue culture is that innovation and edgy ideas played a critical role in advancement of the discipline. Are all plant cells equal? And why does one species easily regenerate where other ones don't? Dr. Vasile explains.
2: I think these are all natural uh, differences based on uh, hormonal profiles. Uh, We did some work with with grasses, and we showed that uh, uh, those tissues which respond very well in tissue culture systems and then reject very well, they show different profiles of oxen, cytokines, and and, and acid, acid and if you perturb those you can decrease uh, their ability to regenerate so I think that uh, in natural uh, content of uh, heart plant growth substances in tissues uh, is a major determining factor and so I think it goes back to the the genetic uh, basis of regeneration that uh, different tissues and different plants respond differently to these stimuli based on what their genetic makeup is and what, how that is then translated into the, the hormonal, you know, balance uh, in these cells. And for example, uh, in cereals, it's very interesting that in cereals generally it is very young, meristematic tissues, which are still dividing but have not differentiated beyond a certain stage. If and this, our work showed very clearly this: that if you take those tissues at a very precise stage of development, they are very conducive to regeneration. For example, you know, in cereals, the immature embryo is the, the tissue culture explant of choice. And in most cereal grains, if you take the developing embryo more than about 10 to 12 days after pollination are earlier than about eight days after pollination, there is no development. If, or if there is, it is minimal. So the optimal tissue culture development of re- regenerable tissue cultures can be derived from these embryos only within a very, very narrow developmental phase. So before that, there's you know, very poor response. And after that window, there is a poor response. In the cereals also, the leaf tissues are a very good source, but it is in the cereals, the, the leaf grows from a meristem at the base of the leaf. So if you take, uh, and again, uh, we did some work in which we showed gradations within the leaf from the base going towards the tip of the teeth, that if you go beyond four or five millimeters beyond the base of the leaf, there is no response. So it is very much related to the tissue. And so in many cases, actually, for example, in gymnosperms, and, you know, they are a major source of fast resources uh, in the world, and there were great difficulties, but it was found that even in gymnosperms, the same uh, technology can be used if these ideas are applied. And so a large uh, number of species and generous plums, uh, they have used immature embryos. If those are used at a particular stage of development, the one can get embryogenic cultures, thousands of embryos are formed, and they then re- regenerate into whole plants. So I think it's a very much a question of, uh, relating to the, the developmental stage of this tissue, and then choosing tissue rightly. If the tissue which is used for explant is not the correct stage or the correct tissue, there is no response. So people say, well, this species is not amenable to tissue culture regeneration. I disagree with that. I think that it is our inability to identify the right tissue at the right development stage which results in failure and not the basic inability of a tissue to career.
1: And so we see this recurring theme that you have to think outside the box. And that's what makes tissue culture as much an art as a science. And it's very common for scientists or even students to uh, start with a protocol that's been well-defined in another laboratory and simply try to translate that into their lab bench. The problem is, is that every plant line is different. Every laboratory is different. And small differences really do make a significant difference. So Dr. Vasile offers some additional advice, gives some more ideas about thinking out of the box, and reflects on some kind mentorship that he had along the way. I
2: uh, I wrote a review. I was invited to write a review about all this. uh, And it was published in. uh, in 2008. And I, I took this whole history from schleiden cell theory to, to modern, you know, biotech crops. And one of the things I said uh, uh, in that review and in, in the lectures that I have given over time is that this is one of the most important things for young people to remember, that not just follow conventional science, you know, have the courage, uh, to be bold and ask difficult questions which have not been asked before. And again and again, the history is full of these examples, people going outside the box. I made a number of actually recommendations that, uh, first of all, young people should not be intimidated by senior scientists saying that, you know, this is what is true. They should challenge them I mean, just not accept these arguments. But also, I should emphasize that in, in my own career, uh, I was very, very fortunate that I had uh, the mentorship of, of people like Kent Heman. I was a grad student working on my PhD, and the area that I was, my, my research was, was very foreign to my supervisor. And uh, when I asked him to work on that project, he said, you will be on your own, but he allowed me to work. And so Thiemann came on a six-month sabbatical to to our department. And he became very much interested in my work. And he would come almost daily to to my desk and talk to me and ask what I was doing. And and he encouraged me to write uh, my work. And he would take the drafts uh, to his hotel. And two days later, he'll come back. He'll make suggestions. And he'll say, you know, I think that you should put this... In a table or, or you know put this into a figure and uh and helped me you know write my manuscripts and um uh, and later on you know i met him many times uh philip white uh was a you know huge mentor to me uh norman Borlaug, you know these are people of enormous stature but they also had enormous humility to, to encourage young people. You know, one of the things which I feel is missing these days is that to the many of the most senior people, and they don't talk very much to young scientists, dry students. I mean, that, you know, to, to have the encouragement of senior people is very, very important for young people. It gives them confidence uh, and hope. And they can, you know, I used to write to... Uh, you know, scientists all over the world, to Europe, to the United States and saying I'm doing this work, I'm facing these problems and and they would respond to me in detail and uh, I would send them manuscripts and they would help me, you know, improve my manuscripts. Uh, I, when I was a grad student, I published uh, two single author papers in science and, and a single author paper in nature. It is all with the help of these uh, you know, very eminent people. They helped me with my work, and uh, helped me prepare my results for publication. And to have that support, I think, is very critical to the development of the next generation of the young people. I think that is an important part of our obligation uh, after you know, we are in positions where we can help others.
1: Dr. Vassil, even though he describes the helpful mentors that really facilitated uh, many of these processes, also hit a lot of resistance that his ideas of being able to regenerate monocots, so the grasses, the grains, were not terribly well received, that these were recalcitrant species, these they don't want to regenerate into new plants. Here he describes some of those episodes.
2: Uh, One of the things I I can uh, tell you is that uh, when we started working with cereals at that time uh, there was this dogma and there are many, many dogma signs that uh, there were actually people writing formally in their publications that cereals were genetically, you know, incapable of regeneration in culture. And I had fierce debates in the United States and in Europe. And I said, you know, God did not, you know, make monocars and dicars and said, monocars, you will not regenerate in culture. Basically all of the plants are same. They come from the same, you know, prehistoric as, as plants developed and all that. It is our inability to regenerate them and we are blaming the plants. So I had this great faith that cereals could be manipulated essentially the same way as tobacco and petunia and other daikas. And so when we started working with cereals, there were a number of people, some well-meaning senior people, who told me that I was going to destroy my scientific career by embarking on this. But uh, my point was that I was a tenured professor at that time. uh, I had uh, good support, funding, and uh, I was going to take this risk. And for several years, we failed. But that eventually led uh, to our use of a particular, exploiting the developmental stage of the explant and and very careful choice of material. And so the the first publications on uh, the development of uh, tissue culture systems in cereals but you could regenerate plants by developing embryonic cultures. The first demonstration, a clear demonstration of the formation of somatic embryos and tissue culture of cereal species, all of those came uh, from our group in Florida. We were publishing, you know, 12, 15 uh, papers a year. And um, when we first did that in May, people said, well, this may be just one example. But then we used about 20 different genotypes on maize. We showed the same thing and everything. We did similar work on wheat, on sorghum, on many other species of pennisetum, many grasses. And so there was such overwhelming evidence provided within a matter of about 10 years that there was nobody left then who could get up at a meeting and challenge and say, well, you know, cereals are not going to work. There was the evidence. And then that provided the window uh, and the opening to then use tissue culture cereals for transformation. And it was because of that, that when we published these papers beginning in 1979, 80, 81, 82, that uh, I was at a meeting uh, in Orlando and presenting this work, uh, a major work at first time. And some people had known around this, the country. Uh, and so there were two people sitting in the front and I did not know them. And after my lecture, there was a break and they both came to me and they, they introduced themselves. And, and one was Rob Fraley from Monsanto and the other was uh, Maki Wright, both from Monsanto. And they said that they had heard about my work and that they had especially come to here. I had been to Monsanto a couple of times before that for seminars uh, Ernie Jaworski was there he had invited me my, about, regarding my work on pollen, and so they said they were very much interested in, in our work and if I'd come to Monsanto to give a seminar so I went there and that started a very fruitful collaboration which lasted for almost 20 years uh, where you know, we were developing these very basic techniques and they were interested in going from tobacco and petunia into major crops, which They were already doing work on soybean. Again, in soybean, all of the regeneration system is based on somatic energy. And so, you know, that was, you know, a very fruitful collaboration between academia and industry. Uh, we got all of the genes uh, from them. And uh, so... So these are very, very, you know, important steps in the development of this technology and it's also a very good example of how uh, academia and, and uh, uh, corporate interests can, can, you know, work together, uh, produce something which is useful
0: for everyone.
1: Yes, back in the day when you could have very nice public and private partnerships, and not raise a lot of freak out by people who claim that you were doing the work of the devil. Quite to the contrary, Dr. Vassil's work literally seeded the heartland. And I then asked him about if how he feels when he goes through a drive through a Nebraska cornfield. And if he feels a little bit of something like, hey, I'm responsible for some of that... Uh, Very much so, actually, yes, yeah,
2: Rob Fraley, uh, you know, he, I have heard him give talks and he mentions this thing and uh, uh, we were, of course, very appreciative of uh, the support we got from them, especially in terms of access to genes before anybody else, you know, knew about those. we had. We had those and we were putting into, and you know, the first papers published from my lab on transformation where you know um, Frehley and Rav Horsch and Steve Rogers, all these pioneers, we were co authors on these papers. So it was an exciting time. We would meet several times here, discuss our results, and uh, but they had no control, I'd say, over you know the direction of our work or our work publications. It was a very, very professional uh, collaboration.
1: So there you have it, the story. As told by Dr. Indra Vasil, the story of how plants are brought from single cells containing that new genetic information to whole plants. And I concluded the interview by asking him, what are you doing now? What's up for a retired professor and is there a chance you might come out and pinch hit again sometime soon?
2: I just had my 84th birthday, so I am fortunate that uh, Vimla and I are both in, in good health. Uh, mentally, uh, my memory is, you know, I don't have any notes that are used to talk to you today, for example. I, I have this very, you know, great uh, God's gift of a good memory. I remember things from you know, long, long time ago from my childhood. So that's, you know, something I, I love and appreciate. Once I moved here to California, uh, as you know, until I was in Gainesville, 2000, end of 2012, I, I retired, but I still maintained a very active office. I was writing, I was lecturing and reading. But once we he moved here, I thought that you know now I've earned the right to to really retire. So I stopped doing any formal lectures, and uh, I don't write anymore in articles. I do get requests, but you know, I think I've written enough. This is now time for other people. But I do keep very much engaged in science. I read uh, maybe twenty or more journals uh, every month. Um, online and i subscribe to some and so i you know scientifically i am engaged in in keeping up with what is happening and i am very much interested in the progress and application of plant technology biotechnology so i we follow that very closely but i don't feel comfortable at this stage to be actively involved in in uh, uh, debates, uh, writing, uh, traveling, you know, since we have moved here, I'm very content that we don't travel very much. Uh, and so, yeah, but uh, you know, I I want to know what my colleagues are doing. Uh, uh, Mark Settles was here recently. I attended a seminar at the Carnegie Institution. A great uh, fun to see him and hear about the wonderful work he is doing. And uh, I keep up with the what you are doing in the department is progressing, you know, greatly under your leadership. So, so yes, in that sense, I'm very engaged, but uh, I don't want to, to become too much involved in, in these things.
1: Well, if you ever change your mind and you feel like, uh, you know, coming out, putting on the lab coat and gloves again, you're always welcome here. And uh, it's really been a pleasure to talk to you about this topic. So thank you very much for joining me today.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Have a good day.
1: And that was my conversation with Dr. Indra Vasil, who was a professor at the University of Florida from 1967 to 1999, and then stuck around to continue his contributions in retirement. I neglected to mention in the beginning that he was the Society for In Vitro Biology's Lifetime Achievement Award winner in 2007. they recognized his contributions to the discipline. I'm Kevin Fulta, and we're wrapping up Talking Biotech number 50. Please write a review on iTunes, Uh, share your ideas about future guests, and let me know what we can do for you, or well, what I can do for you, to uh, enhance this podcast and come up with new ideas for our next 50. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.
0: Free music sounds a lot like you, too,
2: trying to cover a journey song.
0: A finger in a smoky room, the smell of wine and cheap perfume.
2: Well, that midnight like train isn't going anywhere.